Hello and welcome to Vibrant Lives Podcast, a podcast dedicated to your health and well-being, featuring interviews with experts about nutrition, physical health, mental health, and my five-minute food facts series, which are short episodes where I discuss nutrition-related topics. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host. I'm a lawyer turned nutritionist, and I'm on a quest to learn as much as I possibly can about living a healthy, active, and fulfilling life, which I would call a vibrant life, and hence the name of this podcast, and sharing what I learn with you here on this podcast. The health and nutrition space can be a confusing one where information and misinformation mingle and untangling fact from fiction and identifying reliable, trustworthy sources of information is not always straightforward. My aim is to help you do that by speaking with knowledgeable guests who can explain their area of expertise in an accessible way and provide you with practical tips that you can use to improve your own well-being. Before I introduce today's guest, I'll quickly acknowledge that any information or advice provided in Vibrant Lives podcast is not intended to be used to treat or prevent medical conditions, and it's never a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today, I'm really happy to be here with Dr. Emma Ryan, a dermatologist. Emma's areas of expertise include working with teenagers suffering from acne, to advising of options to improve the appearance of mature skin, and much more. But those are the two areas we will be focusing on in our discussion today. Hi, Emma. Welcome to Vibrant Lives Podcast. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure, Emma. And I thought we could start by asking some quickfire questions to get to know a little bit about you outside your work as a dermatologist. So, Emma, where did you grow up? I actually grew up in the Riverland in a little town called Wakery. You're joking. No. So I'm a rural girl. Yeah. So I grew up on a citrus orchard and spent a lot of time on the River Murray water skiing. And yeah, I was there until I was 12 when I went to boarding oh. school and moved down to Adelaide. Do you know that's so interesting because all through my childhood, we had a property at Wakery. No way. A hogswash bend. Hogswash. Well, yeah. I spent a lot of time at Hogswash. Yeah, well, so did I. We, and we had trees there and we used to water ski a lot and have big campfires down by the river. I, I love that place. Amazing. Like, I wonder yeah. if we ever wandered past each other Probably at time. without knowing it. How funny is that? Oh, Adelaide's a small place. Or... Absolutely. Anyway, and your favourite form of exercise? My favourite form of exercise is actually hiking these yep. days. I used to run a lot when I was a bit younger, but now to preserve my joints, I tend to hike. Um, something I do with my husband, yep. but also love to do with some girlfriends. Oh, so very nice. Mainly around Adelaide, but we've just got back from a hike in Tasmania, which was oh, incredible. Brilliant. And we've done a little bit overseas as well. Mm. I mean, Adelaide has some wonderful places for hiking, I think. We're very lucky. Absolutely. And your go-to meal for dinner. So just something you'd cook on a weeknight not a gourmet feast, just your average meal. Yeah, I actually love cooking, but I'm more of a um, a, a bit more of an event cooker than I am a weeknight cooker. Yeah. I get a bit bored, but we tend to eat relatively healthy food. So my go-to would be s- sort of steamed salmon with some broccolini and brown rice with a Asian-style sauce with oh, soy yeah. and yeah, sweet chili and ginger. So pretty simple and, and easy. And delicious and healthy. <laughs> yeah. Are you enjoying listening to anything at the moment? It could be music, audiobook, a podcast. 
I'm a bit embarrassed to say that my current podcast is a bit nerdy and I'm listening to something called Spot Diagnosis, which oh. is actually a dermatology podcast. And I am also guilty of tuning into one in the American Academy of Dermatology. But probably my favourite is um, I listen to conversations quite often when I'm yeah. driving to Wakery because I consult up there once a month uh, right. and visit my family who still live there. So. Yeah, yeah, I love conversations yeah. as well. It's so in- it's always so interesting, isn't it? It is. It's mm. a great podcast. And your dream holiday destination? <laughs> um, generally, my husband and I are very active, so I think a fair bit of action with a taste of luxury at the end. So perfect. <laughs> I'd, yeah, I'd love to sort of hike through the Dolomites and then stay somewhere after that. Oh, yeah. um, but to be honest, anywhere overseas travel at the moment seems pretty radical. It so does, I wouldn't complain it? about anything. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. So Emma, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're a dermatologist. As most people would know, a dermatologist is a doctor with specialist training in the diagnosis, treatment and prevention of skin diseases. But what they may not know is how much study and training is required to qualify as a dermatologist. So can you talk us through your pathway? (laughs) Absolutely. It's quite a long pathway. Mm. Um, So dermatology is a medical and surgical specialty. So medical school is six years. Mm -hmm. For me, it was undergraduate. You can do it. Um, as a postgraduate, yep. which is four years, but mine was six. So this was followed by an internship before before we get full registration and then we're basically qualified to do very little. Mm-hmm. Um, I was drawn to dermatology pretty early on and started preparing for an entrance exam, which we used to have to sit, um, and that was a major hurdle, which right. uh, only about a 30% pass rate. So that was quite a lot of study wow. involved in that, but I got through that. And then I had young children uh, and decided to do general practice for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that for about nine years before I went back to complete my dermatology training, which took another four years. So um, I sort of think my time as a GP was entirely formative and gave me skills, which I would never have got just from specialty training, particularly yeah. sort of communication and yeah. learning to live with mm. uncertainty with medicine. Mm-hmm. So I'll be grateful I did both. But yeah, my true love was dermatology. When did you know that dermatology was the specialty that you were interested in? Yeah. So when I was a third year medical student, my mum developed an unusual skin disease, which was quite rare. Mm-hmm. So um, her dermatologist uh, is still a dermatologist now. And was it was, a, it was a challenge. So he took her along to uh, what we call our state meetings, which we have for challenging patients where right. Patients actually come along and all the dermatologists in South Australia who are available come and have a look. Um, And so it's quite confronting for patients because they have to sit there while everyone sort of has a look and a chat with them. Yeah. Yeah. And then we go afterwards and talk about their condition and come Mm -hmm. up with a plan. It's like getting a lot of heads working on a problem all at once. So it's really useful. And it's a learning experience It is a great learning experience for younger doctors Mm. and also um, older ones as well. Um, But, yeah, my mum was pretty horrified by the whole experience, Mm. but I went along with her at the time and I thought it was just amazing so that's where my interest began and then it just built over the years yeah. of exposure yeah yeah and I imagine it's um it's a specialty that is um quite good to manage with a family is would you say is, that or the, not the training is not yeah. um it is not as family friendly as you would hope yeah um so I think um there were some times when people thought that I had to uh, separated from my husband because I didn't go oh. to anything for a while during training. I was like, no, no, we're not divorced. <laughs> Just been studying. Yeah. Um, so it is, you know, it's not terribly family friendly, but right. you can then set your own life up afterwards. So, yeah. Which is, it's, it's a nice thing. So it's a long term yeah. game. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And what do you most enjoy about your work as a dermatologist? Um, 
I like the combination of uh, medical problem solving, surgery mm-hmm. and pathology. So it's quite a unique mix in the yeah. medical world. Um, there's continuity of care, chronic disease and multidisciplinary team um, with other specialists. So that's all things I really enjoy. Um, but it, probably mostly because it sort of makes a difference to a person's yeah. life. So yeah. poorly controlled hypertension is really only known to the patient and their physician, whereas yeah. poorly controlled psoriasis is known to everyone. There's no way to hide it. So, And the physical and mental impact yeah. is quite enormous for skin disease. So Yeah, you're right. Re- yeah, mm. reducing that impact can be quite life-changing. Mm. So, um, of course, derm can be full of, you know, complex problems, but even solving the simplest issues can be quite rewarding. So that's why I'm particularly drawn to it, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds great. And are there any aspects of the work that you find particularly challenging? Um, like most medical professionals, we sometimes have to deliver bad news yeah. um, and we're no different and that's always challenging and you know, there's an art to doing it. So yep. if you do it well, it's it's certainly rewarding. Um, otherwise, like most uh, families, um, you know, combining work and family is always challenging. Yep. So, you know, there's always more work, volunteering, ensuring communities have access to services, education, all those sorts of things. So the juggle is rewarding, but it's always a challenge. Yeah. And I was looking at some of your other podcasts and thought I might watch one about female doctors and how to balance their oh, life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yes, that was Dr. Tammy Chang in episode 91. She's a physician in the US who helps women doctors set boundaries to avoid burnout and also to help them maintain their career satisfaction. I'd like to talk about our skin, and for you this is going to be very basic, but I thought we could focus on some common skin conditions such as teenage skin and mature skin. But before we do that, I thought it would be helpful if you could explain to us in quite simple terms, you know, what is our skin? What's it made of? And what are its main functions? Obviously, it keeps all our organs (laughs) contained. (laughs) So, so yes, what's skin? So skin is actually, we always joke, the largest organ of the Mm. body. So, and as you've described, it's you know, composed of several layers. Um, the top layer of the epidermis is also composed of several layers and contains mostly keratinocytes, which is the outer protective shell, mm-hmm. as well as some pigment cells called melanocytes and immune cells called Langerhans cells. So the next layer is the dermis, and that is sort of provides structural support, right. nutritional support, and has lots of nerves and blood mm-hmm. vessels. And then under that is the adipose or fat tissue, right. which always has you know, a bit of cushioning as Mm -hmm. well as some other structures in it. So um, it varies depending on the location in the body. You can imagine your eyelid's quite different to your palm, but it has Mm. very similar characteristics across all areas. And it's, I think, um, probably when you, when the skin fails is when you really see how it functions. For example, if you get infections where the barrier's not working, Mm -hmm. getting dermatitis, the barrier function's not working. So failed immunity, we get autoimmune disease, um, dehydration from burns Mm -hmm. and um, drug reactions, um, sort of, you know, temperature control. So there's a lot of different functions. Vitamin D synthesis is also one. Yeah, of course. And Mm. abnormal pigmentation and excessive sweating. These are all things we end up having to treat. And when when the skin's functioning normally, it presents a really important aesthetic appearance to the outside world as well. Yeah, and that that is something I we will be talking about particularly in relation to teens because I think it is really important. One thing I'm just personally curious about because I I don't understand this at all is um, what makes some skin fair and some skin dark? 
Well, it's quite interesting, actually, because we all have a similar number of melanocytes mm-hmm. when we've got normal skin in our in our skin. So um, what differs is the amount of pigmentation right. or melanin that those melanocytes produce. Mm-hmm. So um, dermatologists refer to different skin types and it was devised by Fitzpatrick, one to six, one being very pale with mm-hmm. freckles and pale eyes and often pale hair. Often a red-haired person yeah. might sit in that category. And then skin type six is very dark skin white, one might see in one of our Indigenous Australians. Yep. So, um, so, and then there's a variety of different yeah. colourings in that uh, one to six area. So, um, so it can denote a cultural background, obviously, um, but for dermatologists it helps us with risk stratification as sure. well, obviously. If you've yeah. got more melanin, it's going to be protective against UV radiation and therefore it's going to have a lower risk of skin cancer compared to someone who has less melanin. Mm. And I also understand if you have darker skin, you need more sunlight to produce enough Correct. vitamin D. Correct, because mm. the, the melanocytes absorb UV radiation very well. So Emma, let's talk about caring for our skin. And I'm curious to hear what you think of this. So I remember seeing a dermatologist when I was a teenager. So that's more than 30 years ago now. So that's this knowledge, what I'm presenting now was based, you know, on, on knowledge of 30 years ago. And he said to me, there are only three things that impact the appearance of your skin. One is your genetics, which obviously you can't change. Another is whether you smoke And the final one is sun exposure, as in how much and whether you wear sun protection like sunscreen. So that really stuck with me. But I wonder if the knowledge has expanded since then. So in a general sense, what what are the things you recommend that people can do to look after their skin? Like according to what the doctor told me, I thought it was not smoke and wear sunscreen. But I expect there's a bit more. Well, I actually don't disagree with your dermatologist from years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that advice pretty much stands yeah. the test of time. Um, of course, we have a lot more knowledge now about yes. skin, its functions and how to protect it. Um, and, of, of course, the impact of UV radiation on the skin. So we can't change our genetics, as you no. said, and skin colour certainly plays into that. So, But in general terms, caring for skin that is healthy is actually relatively simple. Mm-hmm. And I pretty much advocate for not spending a lot of money on skincare products. Yeah. You can if you like, and a lot of those products feel very nice on your skin, but when you look at the activity on the skin, they're very you know, similar in terms of effect. So every day we're exposed to irritants via makeup and pollution, mm-hmm. sweat, and for some they get workplace chemicals. So yeah. I think you should definitely sort of wash your face at the end of the day yeah. or your skin, and preferably twice a day if you can. Um, usually with a soap-free, fragrance-free cleanser, mm-hmm. um, often bought from a supermarket the or chemist. a chemist. That's yeah. what I use. Exactly. And, of course, the moisturiser will benefit many people mm-hmm. because it protects that skin barrier. But right. some people don't always need a moisturiser. But the single most important thing is probably an SPF 30 right. minimum, but mm-hmm. most people should use an SPF 50 sunscreen. Would you say every day, regardless of the weather? I think if you don't like the feel of it on your skin, you can, um, there's some apps you can download on your phone. Mm -hmm. So the Bureau of Meteorology has a daily publication of the UV index and there, I have a SunSmart one, which I've made my family download Mm -hmm. on their phones and it tells you the UV index, um, 
throughout the times of the day. So if it's three and above, you should be applying sunscreen. So in the middle of winter, like between 12 to 1, um, you may have to put sunscreen on. But for a vast, you know, time during the day, you won't need to. Whereas summer, it's pretty much 8 till 6. You've got to be wearing sun protection. Okay. Well, I think I'll put a link to that that app in the show notes because that sounds really useful. So UV index of 3 and above. Yes. Okay. Emma, can we... You said washing our skin, our face, particularly twice a day. Can we overwash our skin? Absolutely. So um, overwashing hands causes hand dermatitis yeah. because it barriers the, it, sorry, it damages the barrier function of the skin, which mm-hmm. is really important. So when you strip out the fats and oils yeah. on the skin, that's not helpful either. So it's a balance between trying to reduce the amount of um, dirt and pollution and, you know, toxins on the skin Mm -hmm. without causing undue damage so i think twice a day is appropriate any more than that can cause dermatitis or irritation of the skin and the hands and the face would be no different in that respect yeah i have noticed throughout covid we've all been very conscious of washing our hands a lot and using that um an alcoholic um gel which can be quite drying i find my hands feel really dry So there's yeah. been a lot of hand dermatitis in the last few years. I bet there has. I bet. And especially for people that also have to put gloves on all the time as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, Emma, let's talk about some common skin issues. And Because I thought the most beneficial use of our time today would be to discuss things that affect a large number of people. And the two things that I had in mind were talking about teenage skin, because many of the people listening to this podcast are parents and they've watched their teenagers' faces blossom with acne. So I'd like to delve into that. And then I would like to have a look or talk about mature skin and what happens to our skin as we age and the options available to look after the health of our skin and the appearance of our skin as we age. So if we start with teenage acne first, what are the causes um, I truly enjoy adolescence and I've survived two and still have one at home. So <laughs> I see a lot of um, adolescent acne. So because acne is multifactorial so and it affects about 85 to 90% mm. of people within that age range of yep. teenage and young adults, usually starts around puberty or just prior to with higher levels of sex hormones. So the sex hormones increase the size of oil glands Mm -hmm. and the oil production on the face. And then the bacteria moves in because it loves oil. All right. Dead skin cells accumulate in the pores with oil and form a plug. And then the immune system gets involved and that causes inflammation and results Ah, in pimples. So it's like a perfect storm. Yeah. Hormones are one of the major culprits I'm Hormones, hearing. definitely, and genetics and the way our skin cells um, shed from yep. our hair follicles um, and how they build up in our oil glands. Right. Um, you know, we are also, in some ways, how we live with other people also impacts on the skin microbiome and right. the bacteria we have on our skin. So. Right. Because we do share microorganisms, believe it or not. Yes, and also with our pets, I believe, as well. <laughs> yes. I thought it would be interesting to ask you about what, may or may not be myths, I'm not sure, but I've heard all sorts of things like orange juice and yogurt give you pimples to the other end of the extreme where absolutely nothing you eat has any impact on acne. So does diet play a role? Diet's probably one of the more controversial things to, mm. in terms of evidence for acne, but there are a few things we can advise. 
I think a low glycemic index diet is probably recommended. That's sort of complex carbohydrates that don't cause those rapid peaks in, in glucose in the blood. So I do advise teenagers and young adults and even older women who come or men who come in with acne to avoid lollies. Yeah. Um, I have been guilty of saying if you you know want to have sometimes food, then maybe get a burger and chips instead of lollies yeah. just for acne. Um, not maybe great for your heart. So I think you know I think other things people say chocolate and that does I guess feed into that you know, high glycemic food. Mm. But if you're having that infrequently, I try to be not too prescriptive about it. I don't want people to limit their diet um, overwhelmingly. Um, A lot of um, interest has been around uh, dairy products and acne. And the, the evidence is not too strong, but there were a few studies which came out to say perhaps skim milk might be linked to it. So if you've got young lads who are taking those protein powders yeah. with lots of skim milk in them, I sort of try and get them to reduce that a little bit. There's no easy solution in yeah. terms of diet, but I always think, you know, having a low glycemic index diet is good for your health generally, yes. probably good for your acne um, and, and not too difficult to apply to life. Yeah, it, it sounds like a common sense healthy diet, which is good for you in every other respect, is also good for your skin and that, that clearly makes some sense. That's right. I've never heard the orange juice and I did grow yeah. up on a citrus orchard, yeah. so I'm probably unlikely to cut that out. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wouldn't either. It's just I remember a friend saying to me um, when she had acne that um, because of the acid in the orange juice, or, I mean, I don't know where that came from, but <laughs> it's something I've heard anyway. It's possibly more high glycemic, to be fair. Yeah, probably <laughs> it is too. When a patient comes to you, a teenager with acne, and they've perhaps tried some over-the-counter products and they haven't worked. Uh, so they come to you. And what are the options for these kids? What are some of the effective treatment options available? Yeah. So when I get a young person who comes to me with their acne, they've often tried a few different mm. over-the-counter products, watched TikTok a few times, got a few recommendations from there. <laughs> um, and, you know, they've tried and spent quite a lot of money on products. Yeah. So um, when I see them, they tend we tend to divide acne into mild, moderate and mm. severe. But in reality, the impact of the acne on them is probably the most important question I'll ask when I start speaking to them. Mm -hmm. Some people are quite affected by acne, whereas other people are unconcerned and dragged in by a parent. So that does influence how we treat them. So it will range from topical products. And Mm -hmm. we usually start with simple things if there's mild acne, and that's just, again, cleansers and getting the appropriate products, some with some salicylic acid maybe or some benzoyl peroxide, some of which are available over the counter. I think if there is a comedone, which is a plugged um, sort of pore, then certainly a retinol or vitamin A derived product Mm -hmm. is going to be extremely useful. But the range will be from antibacterial, retinoids, acids and topical antibiotics. Um, There's a bit of talk about light treatments like blue light, which most sort of... um, They'll be beautician-led type treatments. Um, There's no good strong evidence. Mm. They might reduce inflammatory acne a little, but I don't tend to prescribe that in my rooms. Mm. As it gets more significant in terms of moderate to severe acne or impact on the patient, then I would be looking to use anti-inflammatory systemic medication, which would be antibiotics usually, and um, sometimes hormone management Mm -hmm. with contraception or 
anti sort of male type hormone yeah. androgen type treatments um and then finally isotretinoin which is probably the gold standard for treatment of severe acne but it's a quite difficult drug to take and needs to be carefully monitored roaccutane was the original brand and it's now off patent so obviously there's lots of different brand Mm -hmm. names for it but isotretinoin is the generic name for it and that's a sort of long-term uh six to sort of 12 month treatment but it is a very successful treatment for Mm. acne so uh, what I'm hearing is that there are quite a lot of options available mm-hmm. and depending on the severity as to where you might start with something fairly simple right through to the name that you just said that I already can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I said no. What about um, apart from the prescriptive treatments, what about uh, lifestyle treatments? For example, I've heard that it's not great for people to use facial scrubs if they have acne. Yes, I don't really advocate facial scrubs. I find they're usually full of fragrance Mm. and other irritants and preservatives. And I find skin that's already inflamed tends to be irritated by them. Yeah. And the scrubs are aimed at reducing very superficial sort of um, dirt, I suppose, on the skin. And acne, it's not a sign of um, poor cleanliness. It's actually clogged pores with cells and oils. So there's no way you can just scrub it out. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And what about showering after sport? Is that something kids should do? I think that's really sensible. Um, when you sit around in tight sport clothing, which is sweaty, it causes mm. occlusion of hair follicles. And regardless, that's probably not on your face, but a lot yeah. of people can get acne on other areas of their body. And a lot of women who wear sports clothes throughout the day after exercising in the morning will get acne on their buttocks. And Ooh, that out. Yes. <laughs> Awkward to sit down. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, and that does contribute. So yes, I'd always say have a shower and, and change if you yeah. can. And you alluded to when you see a a patient with acne, you ask them how it's affecting them. So I'm interested to hear, you know, as a practitioner in this area, what have your observations been in terms of acne affecting the self-esteem or mood of young people? Absolutely. This is a really big concern. Mm. So I think it's really important to address the impact on teenagers. So for some, a single spot will stop them leaving the house or attending something that they really wanted to go to. Whereas others, as I said before, can be quite unconcerned. Appearance is very closely linked to self-esteem in teenagers and also older people. Mm. And traditionally parents right back in our childhood just thought acne was something you had to just put up with and it would go away. Um, but scarring, unfortunately, is lifelong. So acne will often pass, but the scarring lasts forever. Yeah. It's very expensive to undo and it's never perfect afterwards. Um, and so I would try and treat the acne rather than ignore it for most people and at yeah. least see a GP to get some advice and if needed, then on to a specialist. I guess, have you noticed in movies, the villains often have bad skin? Yeah, they do. They have pockmarked skin, don't they? I was just watching Grease the other day and the villain in that, I I can't remember. No, I no think he's, he's not really a villain, is he? He's called Craterface. He's Craterface. The one, yeah, yeah, he's the, the drives the other car. He drives the other the, car, yeah. yes. So he's he's the villain and he's yeah. got really bad acne scarring and I always 
I always think it's really unfair and discriminatory against mm. people who've suffered from acne in the past. Yeah. Um, transgender and sexual minority groups are also very prone to poor self-esteem and depression, anxiety. And when they're having masculinizing hormones, mm-hmm. it will exacerbate acne. And so yeah. it just also mm. makes the whole situation much more difficult. So it's really important also to capture those um, sort of people within our community yep. and offer them early treatment. So. So, yes, it sounds like if someone comes to see you, they, they can expect um, success, which obviously will tie in with their self-esteem. Mm. And I think how our skin looks impacts us so much, even at my age mm. in my very early 50s. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, if you wake up with a few spots, you just, I don't know, it doesn't stop me from going out, but you just feel a little bit self-conscious and that's obviously magnified in younger people, I think. Oh, look, I think we absolutely learn some resilience as we get yeah. older, but yeah. when you're a teenager and the um, the power of social media now, um, which we didn't probably have when no. we were growing up, so adds to the sort of burden of acne. So yeah. they're presented with this sort of perfect skin at all times um, as well as some rather unusual treatments Mm, Um, mm. and so it really does add to the burden of how they feel about themselves so I've just written an article oh excellent yeah with a psychiatrist and our dermatology RMO um, at the Royal Adelaide Hospital Georgie Heddle um, wrote the vast majority Mm -hmm. of it with our help and just looking at the impact of social media and the psychological burden of acne so it's quite interesting yeah I mean there's so many things for our our kids to contend with not Mm -hmm. just their skin but their the shape of their bodies and all sorts of things you know it's it's tough it is absolutely yeah yeah so it's good to know that help is available um, for our kids. Can I just yes. add? Yes, you can. Only because um, I've just joined the board of the All About Acne um, group, which is oh, a group right. of um, dermatologists Australia-wide, so they have state representatives, and there's a website called the All About Acne website. So it's all evidence-based. It's written by doctors. Excellent. So um, it's quite good information for people to access. So. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Emma. And I will put a link to that in the show notes because one of the goals of my podcast is to get reliable information Mm. out into the public. The other thing that I wanted to talk about with you today is mature skin, because obviously a lot of uh, the parents bringing their children in to see you (laughs) are probably (laughs) wondering about their own skin as well. And as we age, we, we encounter wrinkles and some uneven skin tone. So our skin changes. And I just wondered what is happening within our skin that makes, um, makes it change? Like why do we get wrinkles? Yes, I think we can safely say that ageing is not for the faint-hearted. So, <laughs> yes. And that's not just to do with skin. There's, you know, all our yeah. organs. Um, so with the skin, there's both intrinsic and extrinsic ageing. Mm-hmm. So um, the impacts on the skin, we have a genetic program for our skin ageing. So eventually we develop fine lines, skin laxity, loss of fat pads under your eyelids yep. and above your eyes. And for women, hormonal changes also affect our skin. So, And this will occur if we locked ourselves in a room for our entire lives and had no other exposure. So there is a genetic sort of senescence or loss Mm -hmm. of cell tone. 
Um, extrinsic aging is the influence of external factors, yeah, obviously. Like so sun. Over, absolutely. Yeah. So over time, our bodies lose their ability to self repair, which is mm-hmm. why as we get older, we're more prone to getting cancers and things like that. So damage to our skin, even from early in life, will start to become more apparent in our skin. So we'll get more dark brown splotches on our skin, yeah. pigment changes, lines, um, skin cancers can develop, benign skin spots, which are just annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and all of that's to do with sort of reduction in collagen and yeah. elastin. Right. So we bruise more easily. Yeah, we don't I've have noticed much, that. Yeah, yeah, we don't have as much support for our structures in our skin. And there's less fat and our skin barrier doesn't work as well. So in mm. terms of external things, yeah. yeah. So it's, I think we've covered the UV and smoking, but also pollution. We don't actually know yes. the impact of pollution, which increases. I don't I don't know. In Australia, we're lucky our pollution is slightly lower, but there's still some. And overseas in, in high-density cities, it probably has a large impact. Also nutrition. And if you have yeah. other um, sort of medical diseases, particularly where your immunosuppressed mm-hmm. influences your skin. Wow. So <laughs> that's a rather sobering <laughs> list, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, it's it's part of life, isn't it? We need to to learn to accept that. Um, just uh, one thing I find really interesting is, as a child, I think there was less awareness around being sun safe, and so it was par for the course for people my age to get sunburnt every summer. But I I hope that our children have mainly avoided that, and maybe by the time they're our age, their skin will look better than than ours does perhaps i think that's what we hope for Mm. and because unfortunately skin never forgets so all that damage we had when we were getting our healthy tan yeah um is there for forever but um you can certainly modify it going forward but yes it's certainly our job for the younger generation to protect them from that exposure and particularly public health initiatives where there's no hat no play and there's a lot of advertisement around using sun protection now that was never really available um a lot of my older patients tell me about a chime they used to have on the radio turn before you burn every 15 minutes there'd be a chime when they're out there sunbaking so awful yeah Yeah. so um (laughs) Um, Yeah, so hopefully our younger generation will be better and we hope to see reduction in skin cancer. So it's one of the reasons I wouldn't mind having unemployment. Yeah, Yeah, no, I'm sure that's true. So, Emma, when we're on on the topic of sun, we have just touched on this briefly, but uh, we do need some sun exposure to um, produce vitamin D in our skin. And vitamin D is important for bone health and immunity and our nervous system and many things. Um, So we need to balance that against sun damage. So is there a sweet spot um, or a good amount of sun exposure that will give us the vitamin D but not damage our skin? That's actually a really hard question to answer. Um, I think in Australia, the UV index is high. The risk of skin cancer is high. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't wear sun protection, you will eventually get a skin cancer if you are Fitzpatrick skin type 1 to 3. So other skin types, perhaps less so. I think getting vitamin D is super important as well for your immune system function. And so the balance is difficult, but most people never put enough sunscreen on and you get a lot of incidental sun exposure in Australia. 
So for most people, their vitamin D levels will be fine, mm-hmm. even if they're not at, you know, seeking sun. Yes. So I would still advise people not to be out in the high UV index time. And again, you can look at that app and see when the UV index is in the low levels, three to five Mm -hmm. at either end of the day. And that's much safer if you like to get some UV or sun because it does give you a certain sense of well-being just sitting yeah. in warmth and sun. It feels nice. Yeah. Mm. So they are the times to go out and do it. Other people have to be very careful if they're working indoors or doing yeah. nights or um, have darker skin types. So they may need to actively pursue more sun. But for most people, and myself included, I actually never seek the sun. I actually have a supplement of vitamin D right. if I need it. Oh, that's so. interesting. Yeah. I think a lot of the stuff that I like to do, which is trail running, and you, you mentioned you like hiking, we probably get enough exposure even wearing sunscreen. Correct. Yeah. Mm. So let's talk about mature skin and what we can do, products we can use and treatments available to improve the appearance of our skin if we've got sunspots and, and other damage. Um, so, Emma, you mentioned when we were corresponding before this interview um, Cosmocuticals, is that how I say it? Cosmoceuticals. 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 Cosmos- Cosmoceuticals. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get my words out today. Um, so what are they and what can they potentially do for us? Okay, so cosmeceuticals are a group of products you can use on your skin that are not particularly invasive but do actually have some active um, effects on the skin mm-hmm. as opposed to just protecting the barrier, which is often what cleanses and moisturizers do. Right. So aging's a pretty personal journey and some people are adamant they don't want any intervention um, and others want a lot of Mm. intervention. So I try not to be too prescriptive and be a bit individual based, but I do tell everyone what's available and that way then they can do what they want. Make their own mind up. Exactly. Um, I try to counsel young people who come in to have um, interventions to avoid them until they're a little older. I certainly find beauty in individualism. Can you yeah. say that, individualism? Um, rather than everyone having a generic look um, when they've had their facial structure altered. So, um, so my general, do you want me to go through my general recommendations? Yes, that, that would be helpful? wonderful. Mm. So, um, I would always recommend an SPF 50 sunscreen and there is a variety of different uh, sunscreens which people ask me about. And so I tend to avoid giving um, brand recommendations. I'm not actually, I don't have any shares or sponsors or anything, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) Um, But but I would often say, you know, for women, if they're wearing makeup, get something with a tint in it and then, um, you know, when you have to reapply, because Australians are pretty good at putting sunscreen on the mo- in the morning and then they think they've got it on all day. But mm. in reality, by the time they're going out for lunch, it's still working. Okay. So, well, I'm guilty of that yes, for sure. Absolutely. So um, we're pretty hopeless at reapplying it. So, And if you've got to take your makeup off and put it on again, I mean, it's pretty annoying. Mm, so mm. I usually get a tinted one. If I go out in lunch hour, which is unfortunately not very often, um, I will put a tinted um, sunscreen over the top of my makeup. Right. And that way I don't have to bother too much. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not too picky about what I look like, I must admit. So, but um, certainly reapplying is really important. Um, vitamin C and vitamin B5 serums, one or the other, probably right. not both mm-hmm. together, are quite good antioxidants. So they protect the cells from damage from the sun. Do they sort of seep down through the layers for want of a better <laughs> They do. They sometimes feel a bit sticky, but for yeah. the most part, they just glide onto your skin. Mm-hmm. So, and you can put them on once or twice a day. That's quite fast. If it's vitamin C, probably only at night. Mm-hmm. The other thing which is quite useful is um, alpha hydroxy acid. I've heard of that. Yeah. Mm. So, and you can get some quite inexpensive ones from chemists, um, some good Australian brands, um, produce one as well as the more expensive ones if you want to go to Mecca Cosmetica and oh, things yeah. like that. So well, I can make some brand recommendations if you want. But, but what, what does it do? Uh, Alpha hydroxy acids are good for, again, it's a bit anti-age. It's good for pigmentation. Right. It's good for fine lines and plumping up collagen. Mm-hmm. So it's actually quite useful for acne as well. Okay. And so your brand, your top brand recommendations for I that? I often would use um, a Lucent uh, or recommend oh, yes. a Lucent, which is available at um, Chemist Warehouse. Yeah, it is. I I, I use that. Yeah, exactly. So if you want a more expensive one, then I quite like Drunk Elephant or Paula's Choice. And they're at Mecca, Cosmetica, okay. generally speaking, Ultraceuticals. There's a whole range, but yeah. you're looking over the $100 mark there, whereas the Elucent sits around the $15 to $25 mm. mark. And it lasts for a long time too. It does, that's mm. right. Mm. So um, cot- – <laughs> There's a few more cosmeceuticals. Yes, There's probably yes. one main one, which I haven't mentioned Yes, yet. please go on. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so retinol is probably the most oh, important yes. thing. So we talked about that a little bit with acne because it is anti-acne. Um, retinol sounds all like unicorns and rainbows, but it does have a few side effects that you need to be wary of. But it is anti-aging, particularly mm-hmm. for fine lines. And I say to my patients, both men and women who come in who are interested in anti-aging, that, you know, it takes six months. It's slowish, but right. then you just get a certain glow about you. Um, your skin looks a bit plumper. It's less pigmented mm-hmm. abnormally and um, fine lines are less visible. So, And how often would you apply that? Usually if you get an over-the-counter one, it's a bit milder. So often you can get Using get onto using it every night, mm-hmm. but um, a little bit of irritation and some skin fragility and sun sensitivity you do right. need to be aware of. So you need to be good with your sun protection. Yeah, and it's not great if you're waxing or doing laser hair removal. But the medical grade one, which is quite often the one I give because I can write a prescription, mm-hmm. um, is probably best every second night. And then if you have very resilient skin, you can get up to every night. Okay, right. And are there any others that you use? Or? Hyaluronic acid has a little bit of um, benefit um, to your skin as well, particularly with the barrier. Um, and then there's a whole range of other more invasive things which we can talk about mm. if you want to. Mm. But that's probably the the evidence-based cosmeceuticals. There are a huge range out there, but yes. none of them have evidence. Okay. Um, so would you recommend people use one or two of these products or all of them or what do they do? If people come to me, I'll be very, you know, specific to what I think will benefit them. But as a general rule, if you're going out um, using advice from a podcast, then (laughs) I'd probably start always with one thing and always spot test something on your arm before you put it on a face. Because if you do actually react to something and you've put three different things on your face, you've kind of ruled out the option of ever using them again. Or three. Yeah, so you've got to figure true. out which one might be the culprit. So start slowly. Start in slow and work your way up. And what about um, if we move beyond that and look at some other interventions such as laser treatments for pigmentation? Um, Mm. Is that something you do? 
Absolutely. So we do have a cosmetic side to our practice in Mm. dermatology if you choose to pursue it. And I do some um, cosmetic uh, interventions, probably lasers, one of the main ones I do. I actually uh, do a laser list at the women's and children's um, for port wine stains and pediatric things. I've got quite a lot of experience with laser now. But in my private rooms, I tend to do um, laser for pigmentation, Mm -hmm. redness, rosacea, um, and sometimes a bit of rejuvenation. Right. Now, I've had um, laser treatment for pigmentation and mm. it does – I probably need to go and have another <laughs> lot done, but it does not, work. not what I'm seeing at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and what about – so it, it helps for rosacea, does it? That's interesting. So a vascular laser can be quite useful for fixed mm. redness and, and dilated blood vessels or t- telangiectasia, which is both sun-related and rosacea-related. Rose- so. Right. You know when you see um, – Usually men, but it can be women as well, elderly people with the those red veins in their mm. nose. Can you treat those? Absolutely, you can treat those yeah. dilated sort of vessels. They mm. are very stubborn and quite wide, so sometimes they require multiple treatments right. and you need specific lasers. So okay. there's a couple of lasers you can use for different types of things to treat, but most lasers are very specific. So the light is of a wavelength which is absorbed by what we call a chromophobe, mm-hmm. and that will be um, it's like pigment or yes. blood, for example. So, But there are some you can do multiple things. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. And I mean, one thing I am sort of would be wary of myself, and I'd be interested to hear your opinion, is if I was going to have treatment like that, I'd like to um, go and see a doctor or a dermatologist, uh, not necessarily a, a clinic that doesn't have any medical backing behind it. Do you have a view on that? Uh, I'm probably biased because I am a yeah. specialty trained doctor, but I think always it's best to get the advice of someone who's well trained. Mm. Now, I have um, friends who are GPs who do laser and do skin checks, and they are amazing at yep. it. So it's all to do with the training. Yes. Um, but I think if you are worried, then the first person you go to is the person with the best training and the mm. most experience. And usually, if they're Australian trained, medical people they're usually okay there has been some recent reports in the media of people doing things outside of their training which should be avoided yes by by anyone in any field not Mm. just in the medical field I would say and then if we're going beyond that and people want uh, treatments such as Botox I know that's a really I struggle with it a little bit because the problem I have with it is that I'm worried that it's sending a message to our young girls that beauty is a very specific look where you have no wrinkles, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm never sure about it, but it's if someone else wants to go and get Botox, that is none of my business and <laughs> good luck to them. So I wanted to talk a little bit about it. And, and first of all, what actually is it? So Botox is a toxin. It's Actually, See, that sounds scary. It but, does, I know, mm, but it's been around a long time. But it is, now. It, yeah, it's, yeah. And and to be fair, it's a temporary toxin mm-hmm. effect. So it's produced originally by um, a bacteria. Yeah. Um, and it 
was then manufactured to create this toxin which can be injected and it blocks the end of these nerve fibres right. and stops them releasing a transmitter. Mm-hmm. And it's a relatively permanent blockage, but nerve fibres regenerate. So right. overall it will only last three to four months mm-hmm. for most people. Mm-hmm. It's widely used now. It's not just in the cosmetic world. It's a really important medical procedure yep. as well. In dermatology we use it for a condition called hyperhidrosis or increased sweating where it blocks yeah, the heard that. Yeah, the transmitter between the nerve and the sweat gland mm-hmm. to stop sweating. And mm-hmm. that's been life-changing for some people. It's also used widely in paediatrics for children who have um, some sort of fixed joint or muscle abnormalities and it can loosen them. So that's okay. quite an important thing mm. in the rehabilitation yes. part of paediatrics. Um, so it is widely used in many other fields as well. Um, for cosmetic, I think it, it will last three to four months. So I feel quite comfortable yeah saying it's safe for the majority of people. There Mm -hmm. are some people that we would not give it to if they have significant autoimmune disease. Probably we're being overly cautious, but, um, you know, for a cosmetic procedure, I do no harm is probably the main thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you love it, it's great but it wears off after three or four right. months. If you hate it, it's great because it wears it off after wears three. off. Yeah. <laughs> so and it's, I think the most important thing is to have a good injector if you're going to do it and make sure it's safe. I mean, the worst case scenario if you're injecting around the face is to get some drooping eilid Ooh. or, you know, if you've got a really bad injector, you might look like you've had a stroke, which is oh, not dear. great for three <laughs> to four months. not what you want. Yeah, <laughs> no, but that would be extremely rare. Yeah, so yeah. it's, it's a, you know, minor bruising for the most part mm. if it's carefully done in a correctly mm. identified population it's it's very safe yeah and it probably ties back into what we were speaking about before in terms of self-esteem and appearance and Mm. you know if it makes someone feel good then great yeah Mm. absolutely and I think for the vast majority of the um, healthy mentally you know resilient population it's a useful thing to add into um, how they feel about themselves Um, I think for me I'm always about making um, people look good for their age rather than look ridiculous so (laughs) we all have to age like that's given and if we're not aging that's um probably not ideal because yeah everyone's going to at some point um looking ridiculous is when you look 20 years younger than your actual age and i don't advocate that so but we can soften lines rather than have a frozen face it's Mm. really important to have facial expressions otherwise of course otherwise we lose our communication skills so um but it's it is a nice brightening effect on the skin it takes a few years off definitely oh that's good to know and is there a legal age limit for Botox administration? Could a 12-year-old come in to you and say, I want Botox? Or Yeah. So um, the medical board says, you know, there's no prosecution under age 18 to do it, but they would want a couple of doctors to have a look at the situation mm. to make sure that they're psychologically stable enough to be able to make a decision that Botox is the thing for them. I would very rarely touch anyone under the age of 30 with mm. Botox and usually because I have a quite abnormal single line in a forehead, which we can soften right. with one unit of Botox right. so, or something like that. But there's a larger group of um, people who are coming now in their 30s who want to have it once or twice a year just to stop the fixed lines developing. It's a tricky one, but mm. um, I, I've certainly... Does um, that work? It does. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Because, mm. our, you know, our 
muscles are fixed to our skin on the face yeah. and so the more movement then you will get those fixed lines and sometimes um, women come in and they say I look angry all the time and if we can soften them a bit it mm. makes a big difference yeah and so the younger population again they're ahead of the game than yeah. we were with their with our their sun protection and they just want to prevent those fixed lines yeah well that's really interesting I didn't sort of think about that as an application I thought more about older people trying to get rid of their Reverse, wrinkles yeah. and their lines Emma, when I've been speaking to you, I'm sort of mentally picturing women coming in to see you. And I was just wondering whether you treat many men or whether you've noticed any trends in this area. I think men are becoming more likely to come in and have cosmetic treatments. I think at the moment in my practice, there'd be 10 to 15% of men and the rest would be women. In other practices, uh, beauticians that I've spoken to um, and some sort of laser hair removal Mm. places, it's becoming much more equal and much more acceptable for men to seek out these treatments. So um, I think it's an unfortunate part of our society expectations and the influence of social media and, um, you know, the media in general. Women have certain aesthetic expectations and men, unfortunately, or fortunately rather, do not. Mm, No, it's interesting. I um, have noticed myself um, a lot of men have their legs waxed and that's often because they're cyclists. Yes. And so, and then you think, oh, one thing might lead to another. And I know that um, even with things like pedicures, men are starting to take more care of their feet just in general. So I don't see why that wouldn't carry Mm. over into, you know, appearance of their skin and cosmetic applications. Absolutely. As Mm. long as it works the other way where women are less. Yes, sort of pressured into having all of the treatments and interventions that perhaps I don't want. So Mm. have you ever been in a situation where you've um, someone's asked you to do a cosmetic intervention and you've thought it's not a good idea? Is that something that ever happens? Absolutely. Yeah. Quite often, in fact. Mm. And I then spend a lot of time counselling that person. Um, And if they're still still adamant that they want to have that Mm. cosmetic intervention, procedure done I will give them the advice of people they can go and see because I'm not comfortable doing it for them that's so interesting I mean that must be one of the challenging areas um, because it sounds like you need to be a bit of a psychologist as well (laughs) it is and there's a there's conditions called body dysmorphic disorder which is a psychological um, diagnosis where people keep seeking out um more and more treatment for these imagined defects mm. in their uh, in their body and face. And it can be really risky for them over a period of time. Yeah. And so we do spend time exploring whether people have the resilience and it's an appropriate treatment for mm. them. Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. There's obviously so, such a diverse range of things that you um, are dealing with in your practice. Yes, it's a very interesting world to work yeah, in. Yeah, I bet. So let's um, let's wrap this up now, Emma. So who inspires you? <laughs> this is actually a really tricky question for me because I feel constantly inspired by different people that I come across. So as a general rule, I'm inspired by um, my patients quite a lot of the time, particularly the paediatric patients I see at the Women's and Children's mm-hmm. Hospital. They're constantly overcoming hurdles placed in their way, often through genetic disease or severe skin disease and just the small triumphs along the way I always celebrate that with them um, and I find their resilience quite incredible 
Um, Closer to home, my neighbor Jemima Leiden inspires me constantly. So she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer when she was five years of age. She survived the cancer. She then survived the treatment, not knowing what the future holds. And she has turned into this incredible, bright, resilient young woman who's about to turn 21. Oh, she lovely. fundraises for ovarian cancer. She's a public face for ovarian cancer. She's done the white shirt campaign. She's working um, for Samri doing some ovarian cancer research. And she's taken what is an incredibly challenging experience and made it a positive and is helping other people. So. Oh, fantastic. And finally, sorry, last week I listened to Associate Professor Kelvin Kong, who is Australia's first Indigenous surgeon, and his story of achievement is remarkable. And listening to his story actually made me cry. I was sitting in an auditorium listening to him speak, and I was crying and laughing and just incredible. So definitely worth finding his story if you get the chance. Oh, that's so interesting. What kind of – did you say he was a surgeon? Yeah, he's an ENT surgeon. Yeah, Yeah. so but his his background and um, how far he's taking his training. He's now an Amazing. associate professor, so that's pretty incredible. Gosh, that, Given that the is the disadvantages incredible. he faced early in life so, and yeah. what he does now to help others is really quite yeah. amazing that that is inspiring and how tenacious of him mm, to you definitely. know keep getting up over these hurdles and rise to such lofty heights. Mm. And the final question that I like to ask all of my guests is, if you could recommend two things that all people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? And they don't need to be related to your work. They can be anything. I think things I try to apply to my own life um, is to focus on the positives and have a healthy perspective. So I think um, focusing on the positives, none of us are perfect and we all have um, things to deal with in our life. So I think if you can find the positives mm. in your life and focus on them, it will help you um get through life and I think um, not sweating the small stuff too much and having a healthy perspective so I might have a really um, challenging week and then I go to work and I see someone at you know with a really bad um, medical condition and what they're going through and I'm just like I've got nothing to complain about and I'm so fortunate and you hear other people's stories so I think if you can do those two things Mm. then um, life gets a little bit more manageable sometimes. Yeah thank you Emma that's wonderful advice. So if people want to um, find out about your practice and see what you're doing what's the best way for them to do that? So I work at in private at Adelaide Skin and Eye Centre, which is in Kent Town in Adelaide. Um, and so they can see me there if they need mm-hmm. to see a dermatologist. Um, I also work at the Women's and Children's and I'm the head of unit there and I work at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. I'm busy. Wakery now. Oh, good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think... I'm also on the All About Acne um, board, so you can see me on that website as well. Oh, that's excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today and spending time talking to me when you obviously have a very busy schedule. And it's just been wonderful to chat to you. So thank you, Emma. Thanks so much, Amanda. It's been good to be here. And that was the extremely knowledgeable and clever dermatologist, Dr. Emma Ryan. I hope you enjoyed that informative episode and if you have friends with teenagers or who may be interested in skin care for themselves, please share this episode with them. I'm always grateful to people who help spread the word about Vibrant Lives podcast because word of mouth really does make a difference. 
You can subscribe to Vibrant Lives podcast on most good podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio and Google Podcasts. And you can also subscribe on YouTube. And please do follow me on Instagram at Vibrant underscore Lives underscore podcast and on Facebook at Vibrant Lives podcast. You can find my website at vibrantlivespodcast.com and on my website you'll find a library of all my previous episodes. You'll find reviews of books that I recommend under Amanda Recommends and they're books about health or well-being that I've found useful and informative. You can also contact me via my website or DM me on social media. Please let me know if there's someone you'd like me to interview or a topic you'd like me to address in my 5-Minute Food Facts series and I will do my best to do that for you. And finally, this podcast is recorded on ancient Ghana land. I acknowledge the Ghana people as traditional custodians of this land and pay respects to their elders past, present and future. Thank you for tuning in today. Eat well, move well, think well, live well.